0: Well, good morning, High Point Church. My name's Parker Richardson, and if we haven't gotten to meet, uh, I serve in multiple capacities of our church, predominantly with students and uh, with our college and 20s. And I uh, just wanna say welcome to everybody. Uh, the room is empty, which is bizarre, but everybody's at home this week, but we do wanna say welcome to uh, our East Memphis campus, Carville campus, Church at Home. Everybody's at Church at Home this week uh, because what a week uh, it has been. Snow Apocalypse 2021. Uh, and it's been great for some. I know it's been amazing. It's been awesome for me just to see all the videos of people sledding and hanging out, having a blast. Uh, but there's also been um, loss and tragedy within our body. Um, family at High Point Carville lost their mom. Uh, we've talked about the Tashies losing their grandson. Um, so we know that when God brings new circumstances that it, um, it affects everyone differently. And uh, we just want you to know, um, as your church family, that if you are weeping this week, that we're weeping with you, uh, we're mourning with you. And if you're rejoicing this week, man, uh, it's been awesome to rejoice and look at my phone and see all of the posts and everything else. So if you've had a blast this week, uh, we love that as well. Let me pray for us as we dive into, as you could tell, uh, is a long passage this morning. So we don't wanna waste any time. And if you... Don't have your Bible. Um, You have my permission during this prayer to go and grab your Bible. Uh, You need your Bible. As a communicator at High Point, we we never want you to take what I say, what I'm about to say, um, at face value. Don't take my word for it. But look at it in the scriptures. We want you to see these things for yourself. And you're gonna need your Bible as we walk through this. So if you don't have it, run and grab it as I pray for us this morning. Lord, thank you for this time. God, we lift up those in our body um, that are experiencing loss. Um, God, that are mourning, that are weeping. Um, Father, we're grateful that if we are in Christ, um, that this world is as close to hell as we will ever get, um, that it only gets better when you arrive or when you call us home. God, we thank you for Jesus' words um, when Lazarus died, um, that he says, He who believes in me will never die. Um, so, Father, we're grateful. Um, we are, as we approach your word in Colossians, father, we are grateful, um, for how you inspired Paul to write this incredible, incredible letter about your, um, son, Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So teach us as we walk through it now in Jesus name, we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to cover a lot of text this morning and we are going to end chapter two. Um, So this is week seven, I believe, of our 12 weeks in Colossians, and uh, we're going to finish the whole book, and we're going to make a lot of headway this morning. So um, grab your Bible, Colossians 2, verse 8. But while you're there, uh, let me give you some context to what's happening here. Uh, This passage this morning is actually kind of the heartbeat of why Paul wrote this letter. Uh, We've talked about this for the few weeks leading up to um, this passage. Will talked about this beautifully in the first week of this series. Um, But this passage is the heartbeat behind why Paul wrote this letter, because there was a heresy in Colossae. Um, We've talked a lot about the geography of Colossae and the Lycus Valley and all those things. But there was a false teaching that was showing up in Colossae. And these people that were teaching this false doctrine were attacking the believers, spiritually, not physically attacking, but they were attacking their beliefs. And uh, what they were doing, we don't know exactly what they were saying, but we can tell from what Paul is going to argue in our passage this morning, we have a pretty good idea of what it was. And it was a form of Gnosticism. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the term Gnosticism. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. And the Greek word gnosis just means knowledge. Um, it's where we get our word knowledge from. We use English, we use KN. Uh, the Greek uses Gamma Nu, they use GN, but it's, it's, what they're teaching is there's a higher knowledge than Jesus Christ, that there was a higher knowledge than Jesus. And the same teaching that was prevalent in Colossae is actually pretty still prevalent in our day today. And you hear this all the time where we go, yeah, believing in Jesus is great, But that's kind of JV. Like, that's a great start, but then you got to go and add these behaviors or you got to have these metaphysical experiences. You've got to, um, you know, receive the second blessing. Uh, You're not really saved until you receive your gift of tongues. All these other false teachings that take place um, that teach that there's, Jesus is awesome, but there's a higher knowledge than Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing this entire book. It's actually what so many commentators call the most arrogant book in the Bible because it is, all about the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And why is Paul doing that? Because if you're going to attack Jesus and say that um, there's a higher knowledge than Jesus, you've got one of two options. The first option is you have to belittle his deity. You have to say he, either he wasn't God, he was an angel, which was being taught in this day, um, that he wasn't God, or you can either attack his deity or you can attack his work and say it wasn't finished, it wasn't complete that we now have to add something. And Paul is attacking both of these in this letter. And before we move into our text this morning, I want you to know um, that it is good. It's a good thing that this was being attacked. Because why? We benefit from that attack. We benefit because when Christianity, when our beliefs are attacked, what does it force us to do? It forces us to go back to the source, to go back to the origin. And the church today is standing on so much dogma is what we call it. Um, so much attack that has been coming and the, when the church affirms doctrine, we benefit from it. And it's actually our story. It's why we believe what we believe today. It's the story of the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther and others, they carried this um, spirit, this theme through the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had added so much to the gospel. It wasn't just grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was all of these other things. It was works. It was all of these different things you had to do. You had to, the priest was a mediator, all these different things. And the spirit of the Reformation was this Latin phrase ad fontes, which means back to the fountain or back to the source. And that's exactly what Paul's doing in this letter, is he is going to uphold the person and the work of Christ. And we've already seen him uphold the person. And this morning, he's going to say that his work is complete, that we have a complete salvation in Jesus Christ. We need not turn to anything else. We can't add anything to it. It is complete and it is finished. And Paul's going to explain what Jesus has done for us. So I want, just wanna show you for a second, look at how arrogant this is and look at how amazing and beautiful it is. If you flip back over to chapter one, just for a second, and this won't be on the screen, so you need your Bible. But if you look over, look at all of the in Christ or the of Christ in chapter one. When Paul starts, he says he's the apostle of Christ to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we've heard of your faith, in Christ. And then he talks about Epaphras in verse um, seven. He says he's a faithful minister of Christ. And then we get to verse 15 through 20. Paul just breaks out in this poem about who Jesus is, the person of Jesus Christ. He's the image of God made visible, that invisible God made visible through Jesus Christ. If you wanna know what God is like, you look at the person of Jesus, that he created all things, that he holds all things together, that it's all by him and through him and to him and for him. And that through his death on the cross, he reconciled us to God. He upholds the person of Christ. And then as he ends chapter one, he says this. He says, this mystery hidden for ages is Christ in you. And what he's talking about here is the mystery that was hidden for ages is that so many people believe that the salvation from Jesus Christ, the the Messiah, God's salvation was only for the Jews. And Paul's saying, no, this mystery is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That it's not just for the Jews, that it's for all nations. That the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For all people. That this gospel was for all. And that's the mystery is Christ is in you. These Gentile believers in Colossae. And then as we talked about last week, we moved into chapter two. And how do we respond to this? He says this in uh, verse two. He says, God's mystery, which is in Christ. Verse three, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're in Christ. No one may delude you with plausible arguments. So he says, everything's in Christ. So don't fall prey to these arguments. In our passage today, he's gonna tell us what these arguments are. And as Will walked us through last week, just as you received Christ, two verse six, walk in him, rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith. And here's what Paul is saying. Our spiritual growth, you and I, if you want to grow in your walk with the Lord, if you want to grow spiritually, it is never apart from Christ. We never grow apart from Christ. We never grow away from Christ. All of our spiritual growth is in him. We grow in the knowledge of him. We grow in our intimacy with him. We grow more and more in the knowledge of who he is and what he's done on our behalf and the implications of that in our lives. We grow in our intimacy with him and we grow in our obedience to what he said. That's how you grow spiritually. It is never away from the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of our spiritual growth is in him. If you want to grow, you do not grow apart from him. You don't grow away from him. The gospel is A to Z. It's not just a, it's not just the doorway to get in. It is how we grow. It's in him, it's in our knowledge of him, our intimacy with him, and our obedience to him. So Paul has upholded the person of Jesus Christ and now he's going to say that his work is complete. And this is where we pick up in verse eight of chapter two, and this will be on the screen. He says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And what Paul is saying here, this see to it is actually a present active imperative, which means present tense. It's a continuous action that we're to do. And it's an imperative. It's a command. So we are commanded by scripture to continually make sure that we aren't being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And this this is a hostile verse. Paul was, the verbs he uses here are pretty hostile. And what he's talking about here, taken captive, that word in the Greek is the only time that Paul uses it in the New Testament. Um, And it's actually kind of a word that he made up by combining two words. And it carries this idea of being a prisoner of war, of being taken captive, of being carried away. And what does he appeal to? Philosophy. What is philosophy? It's man and our human reason trying to answer the fundamental questions of life, of why we exist and how we got here and the problem of evil and all these kind of things. And what Paul describes them as, as he says, the elemental spirits or the elementary principles of the world. These basic fundamental questions don't let people take you captive by this philosophy and Greek mythology and all these other different worldviews. And he says they're according to human tradition and not according to Christ. And it would be like, pick one of your favorite Um, celebrities, one of your favorite athletes of all time, one of your favorite Christians of all time. Uh, I've been reading a little bit on Diedrich Bonhoeffer and uh, holy moly, what an incredible man. And Bonhoeffer was a pastor in the 1930s that ended up going to Germany during World War II and became a spy and was a part of this group that was trying to take down Hitler and all these kind of things. And it was eventually, um, he was killed in a concentration camp in Germany, but did so much For the faith, did so much for the church in Germany, did so much to help free um, Jews that were in Germany. And uh, it would be like all of these people that have written biographies about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's so many, there's incredible written works about Bonhoeffer. But it would be like Bonhoeffer coming back from the dead and writing his own autobiography. And this is how it was. And this is what I felt. And this is what I said. Paul is making the same case here. He's saying, we do not need to turn to human reason to try to answer the fundamental questions about life and existence. God himself has revealed it to us. He's written it to us in this word. And man does not need to try to in our own reason. Finite man does not need to try to describe and understand an infinite God when the infinite God has revealed himself to us. We don't need to turn to these other philosophies, according to human tradition, about these elementary or elemental spirits of this life. God himself has shown it to us through the person and work of Christ, through the word. John one, in the beginning was the word. The word was God, the word was with God. Verse 14, the word became flesh, that we have the very words of God. And we don't need to turn to philosophy to try to answer these fundamental questions. And then he says this in verse nine, um, echoing chapter one, verse 18, he says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this verb dwells is in the present tense. It's a continuous action. So what Paul is saying that is in the person of Christ, Permanently, always, the whole fullness. The Greek, if you break it down into its simple parts, is the whole entirety of God is in him continuously and permanently. It's always been there in bodily form. Jesus Christ is the image of God made visible. He is the invisible made visible. Permanently, continuously. We don't need to turn to anyone else. We have what we need in the person, in the work, in the word of Jesus Christ. We need not look any further. And notice this, Paul says the one who, all the fullness of God dwells, verse 10, in him, and you have been filled in him. Don't miss that. The one who is full of all of the fullness of God has filled you, if you're in Christ. We have been filled by the one who has all the fullness of God in him. We don't need to turn to anything else for our fulfillment. In Christ, we have all of life. We have peace and acceptance before God. We have every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1, 3. We're fully righteous before God. We're fully adopted. We're fully sealed by his spirit. We're fully known, fully loved, fully accepted, fully forgiven, and fully redeemed in Christ. We don't look anywhere else. The one who all of the fullness of God is in him has filled us if we're in Christ. We don't need to look anywhere else for our fulfillment. So if that's you this morning, if you found yourself this past week looking for other things to fulfill your life, it's in Christ. And so many of us, even after we've received the gospel, we're so quick, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're so quick to wander away from the finished work of Christ and try to find our satisfaction, try to find our significance, try to find our um, fulfillment in so many other things. And Paul says, no, go back to the fountain. Go back to the source. It's in Christ. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And I just want to thank Will for another circumcision passage. Uh, I feel like I've gotten a lot of those lately. Uh, But what is circumcision? It was the Old Testament sign of the covenant. And what would happen was if you were um, a Jewish boy on the eighth day after you were born, you would be circumcised. And it was a physical procedure that would bring you into the covenant family of God. You didn't have to do anything. All you had to do was be circumcised. And it would bring you into the family. This was a sign. This was the way that God's chosen people, the Israelites would set themselves apart, that they would be holy. They would be set apart and holy unto the Lord, that they would be the only nation that would do this and they would set themselves apart. And this was a sign. And then Paul says, in him, in Christ, we were also circumcised, but here's the difference. with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that this Old Testament sign, in fact, in a few verses, he'll actually say it was a shadow of the reality that was to come. But this sign was pointing towards something greater a greater circumcision made without hands, that the love of God, that the grace of God, that the mercy of God would cut us to our hearts and that the finished work of Jesus would cut off our sinful flesh, that we would be able to stand before God, fully righteous with Jesus's righteousness on us. And then we would, the sinful flesh, our sinful nature would be cut off. And this wasn't a surprise to the Jews who followed Um, God in the Old Testament who had the law. In fact, the law spoke about this often. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Jeremiah 29, he says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. There's, There's a time coming when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. That there's gonna be a day where this physical act doesn't cut it. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon and Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And he also talks about it in Deuteronomy 10, Jeremiah 4, and Ezekiel 44, I think verse 7. But this idea that there was a greater circumcision coming was all throughout the Old Testament, that there would be someone greater who would come, and his Life, His perfect life, his perfect righteousness, and his death on the cross would display the love and mercy of God for all humanity. And that to all who would receive him, he would cut off our sinful flesh. And that's what Paul is talking about. If you're in him, you were circumcised, past tense, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This was a physical procedure in the Old Testament that was a shadow of a spiritual one to come. That one day, the love and mercy and grace of God would cut us to our hearts. And that when we received him, he would cut off our sinful flesh. That's what Paul's talking about. And he uses this term um, by putting off the body of flesh. This term putting off in the Greek is Opec and uh, we're going to talk about this word, what this word means here at the end of our message. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a form, of, it's a word meaning stripping off. And it's this idea of the old coming off and the new coming on. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What's happened? The old has been put off. The old is gone. The new has come. This was true in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 33. 36, 26, he talks about, I will put a new heart in you, a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in. Same idea that he's talking about here. So we've been circumcised with a circumcision that wasn't made with human hands. And then he goes on in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgive us of all of our trespasses. So Paul says in this two verses that we were dead and we've been made alive, that we were buried and that we've been raised. And some of you may be listening thinking, okay, but I've never died and I've never been raised. What's Paul talking about here? He actually communicates this idea in so many of his letters. He talks about this in Romans six, that if we're in Christ, if we're united with Christ, we've been united in his death. If you are in Christ, if you've received the love and mercy of God on your behalf, the forgiveness of your sins, if you have put your faith and your hope and your trust in him, if you're united to him, you're united in his death and in his resurrection. He says it in Romans chapter six, let me just read it to you. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but he says this, we were buried therefore with him, By baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died to sin has been set free from sin." Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So what Paul is saying here in Romans six and in Colossians two is that if you are in him, as we talked about in December, if you have union with Christ, You are united with him in his death and you're united with him in his resurrection. And a glorious thing to think about is in Ephesians 2. I just wanna read one more short passage to you. Um, Paul uses these past tense verbs. It's, It's like it's already happened. It is so sure and it is so certain it has already happened to us. Ephesians 2. This is what he says, starting in verse four. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us, raised us past tense, seated past tense with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. And Paul says the same thing that we just read in Colossians 2. He says that having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith. If you put your faith and your hope and your trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, you are united with him in his death and you're united with him in his resurrection. And we are brought together with Christ. And then he says this, how did he bring us together? How did he forgive us of our trespasses? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. By canceling the record of debt. And the word, the record of debt is this Greek word, it's graphon, And what it is, is kyra is hand in Greek and graphe, graphe is writing. Um, And what it is, it it means handwriting. It's a handwritten letter. a, A chirographon in the first century was a handwritten note by someone who was in debt. It was a promissory note. It was a promise that you were going to pay your debt. And what would happen in the first century is that if you went into debt, you would have to sign one of these notes and man, they would plaster it all throughout the city so that no one would help you. No one would buy you anything. No one would come to your aid. Why? Because you're in debt. And if you have a debt to pay, no one's gonna add to it. No one's gonna give you something thinking that you'll pay them back. And you couldn't live until you paid your debt. And notice how he describes it. He says, the record of debt that stood against us The word he uses in the Greek actually means was hostile towards us. It testified against us. Why in the world would Paul say we have a record of debt, but it's hostile against us? Why would he say that? Because we have no earthly ability to pay it. You were dead in your sin and there's nothing that you could do to make yourself alive. There's nothing that you could do to pay your own debt. It was hostile towards you. It was testifying against you. And what did God do? He canceled it. And the word cancel there in the Greek means to obliterate it. He canceled our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through his perfect and righteous and holy life and his death in our place on the cross, he paid for our debt. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness on the cross and he canceled it. And how did he do it? How did he cancel our debt? He tells us in verse 14. He doesn't just magically make it go away. God doesn't just make the debt disappear. That's not how God works. As God is describing himself in the Old Testament, in Exodus, as he's describing himself to Moses, he says that he forgives sins, but he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. That you and I, we serve a God who is merciful, but he is also just. And he's both of those at the same time. And we want a God. You and I want a God who is just, who, do, who punishes wrongdoing, who doesn't let any sin or any wrongdoing go unpunished. And every sin in this world will be paid for. It will either be paid for by the person who committed the sin or it will be paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross if we're in him. But how did he set aside our debt? How did he cancel or obliterate our debt? He didn't just magically make it go away. Someone had to die. Someone had to pay. Hebrews talks about where there is no shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Somebody had to die. So who died? God himself took on flesh and he met the standard of the law. He fulfilled the old covenant down to a T. He obeyed the law perfectly in our place. He met his own standard and he died in our place. That's how he's obliterated our debt. That's how he set it aside. And notice um, taken away in verse 14, he set it aside or he took it away. It's in the perfect tense in Greek. And Will's talked about this the past few weeks. Greek has way more tenses than the English language. um, So forgive us when we explain these over and over again. But the perfect tense in the Greek is a completed action in the past that has ongoing and present effects or repercussions. He took it away, completed action in the past, it's gone. And it still has its effects today. So when the enemy comes knocking and tries to shame you, tries to condemn you, you show him the proof of purchase. You show him that it's paid. It was paid back then and it's still paid today. Still paid. Perfect tense. Completed action in the past at the cross, they were fully and finally paid for. Repercussions that still last today. Ongoing effects. Debt is paid. That's how he paid it. Not only that, what did the cross do? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And this phrase, put them to open shame, what what took place in the first century was if you were a nation that conquered another nation, if you were army that conquered another army, what you would do after you conquered them, you would take all of the splendor of their possessions and you would take their top dog, their king, their leader, and you would strip him and you would tie him to the back of your chariot and you would parade back into your hometown with everybody cheering and shouting and all of those things. And you would completely humiliate the person that you defeated. And they would be tied to the back of your chariot and you would drag them and their possessions back to your hometown. And Paul is using that same imagery here. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He stripped them, put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them. How did he triumph over them? He rose from the dead. That they killed him, and three days later, he rose from the dead, and as 1 Corinthians 15 says, he appeared to more than 500 people. And then he ascended into heaven at the right hand of God. He triumphed over them. When they thought they won. He rose and triumphed over them, put them to open shame. Every philosophy, every other idea, all this asceticism, and the word asceticism, asceticism, as we'll see in a second, just means intense self-denial. In fact, it's like self-punishment. It's intense, way intense discipline. Um, Every philosophy, every form of asceticism, every form of legalism, he put all of those to open shame. Why? Because his work is finished. Some of the most troubling words, for false teachers in Paul's day and false teachers in our day today where Jesus is last it is finished it means we don't add anything to it we don't get to add to we don't get to say well yeah it's great now you got to do this 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 and this and this you got to experience this you know metaphysical experience you got to believe this other philosophy about life no it is finished it disarms the philosophical God has revealed himself to us and he's finished the work and the religious and the legalist. You don't get to add anything to it. It is finished. And those words have troubled so many false teachers since the church began. It's finished. It's done. So he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival, festival or a new moon. Sabbath. What's Paul talking about here? He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment. And here's another imperative. So we've got three imperatives in this text that we're going to look at. He says, um, don't let anyone carry. He says, make sure, watch that no one's carrying you away. And then he says, let no one pass judgment on you. And what's he talking about here? He's not talking about uh, the judgment that you and I experience today where we say, hey man, don't judge, where they criticize you. He's not talking about criticism. If you're a believer in Christ, you're going to be criticized. It's going to happen. When he says, let let no one pass judgment on you, what he's talking about here is, don't let these people come and tell you that your faith isn't genuine. Don't let these people come and judge you, lord over you and judge you and determine that you aren't in Christ, that you aren't actually saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Don't let someone stand over you in judgment and say, no, your faith isn't genuine because you haven't added this philosophy or you haven't added this list of rules. You haven't experienced this metaphysical experience. Don't let them stand over you and say that. And then when he talks about new moon or drink or Sabbath, um, he's appealing to the ritualistic, the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. New moon was a monthly festival. Sabbath was a weekly day set aside to rest. And then you have all these ceremonial um, eating and drinking laws in the Old Testament. And what Paul says, look at verse 17. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What is a shadow? A shadow is an outline of a real thing, but it's not the real thing. If you're looking at the shadow, all you see is a glimpse or a faint picture of the real substance somewhere else. And Paul says all of these things in the Old Testament, all of these ceremonial laws, the Sabbath, the new moon festivals, eating and drinking rituals, all of those were a shadow of the substance that was to come. And Paul is saying right here that the substance is here. They are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And what he's talking about here is all of the Old Testament sacrifices, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament to forgive sin was a shadow of the greater sacrifice to come. The prophets, of the Old Testament that would speak the words of God. They were what? They were a shadow of one who was, would come later who would be and speak the very words of God. Everything he said would be the word of God. The temple in the Old Testament where the presence of God would dwell with his people was a shadow of what? Of someone who would come who would be God dwelling with his people. Jesus Christ, he's the temple. Sabbath, this day of rest where you would set aside and you wouldn't work, but you would rest and what God has done for you was a shadow of who? Jesus, who would be our Sabbath rest, that if you're in Christ, you don't have to ever work to try to earn God's favor. You can spiritually rest for all eternity. It's done, it's finished. And what Paul is saying in this verse is all of these Old Testament ceremonial laws about cleanliness, um, about eating and drinking, All of those were a shadow that you would have to live set apart. You would have to live holy unto God of someone who would come and he would be the holiness of God. And if we're in him, we are made holy and we are made righteous. And it's not anything that we could ever do for ourselves. They were a shadow of the greater substance that was to come. And Jesus is that substance. And then he says this in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Here's our third command. See to it that no one takes you captive. Don't let anyone stand in judgment over you and then let no one disqualify you. That word there is like a judge uh, of an athletic competition robbing someone of their prize. See that no one robs you of your prize, insisting on asceticism, this intense self-denial, this intense um, punishing and beating of yourself, beating yourself into submission and worship of angels, this mysticism. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And that phrase puffed up without reason in the Greek literally means full of hot air. All of these people that are going on about their visions, they've entered into these visions and they've said that you don't have Christ, you aren't secure in your faith if you don't experience these metaphysical experiences and you're not worshiping these angels because Jesus was an angel and all those kind of things. Don't let any of those people disqualify you. It is finished. Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in him. He lived the life we could never live. He died the death that you and I deserved and his work is finished and no one can rob that from you. His righteousness, his holiness, his death, his resurrection given to you freely if you're united in him by faith. That's what Paul is saying here. And then he says this in verse 19, and not holding fast to the head. Here's what these people that are preaching this asceticism and preaching this mysticism, this worship of angels, what are they doing? They're not holding fast to the head. Who is the head? He's already told us in chapter one. Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. All of these people have departed. They've forsaken Jesus Christ and they moved on to these other teachings and they are in error. We don't grow apart from him. We don't grow away from him. We grow in him. And Paul calls these people out and says, no, they're preaching all this stuff. They're saying it's doctrine. They're saying it's um, varsity level Christianity. No, they've departed from the head. They've severed themselves from the head. They've cut themselves off. It's not genuine at all. And don't let these people disqualify you. They have severed themselves from the head. That's what he's saying here. And then he says this in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. And when he says, if with Christ you died, he's not saying that it didn't happen. He's not saying that it might've happened. It's a rhetorical statement. Since you've died with Christ, it's already happened. If you've died with Christ to the elemental, the elementary principles of this world, why do you still submit to them? Why do you still let these people come and pray on you and say you've got to start adding these list of behaviors to your faith? It's finished. Why do you submit to them? Uh, we actually see, the, see this play out all the time in student ministry. Uh, we see students that come to us and we talk about um, the completeness of Christ's work on the cross. And we talk about um, that it's finished. The debt is paid, that we are completely forgiven, past, present, and future. And always a student will come and say, well, if I'm forgiven for all my sin, does that mean I can just keep sinning? And Paul actually addresses this in the New Testament with the strongest negation in the Greek New Testament, uh, meganoita. He means by no means. It's like you know, the strongest no you can think of in our English language, probably with, you know, a four letter word between or before it and all those kind of things. But that's what he's saying. And it would be like a person, um, an alcoholic who's finally sober saying, okay, can I go back and start drinking again? No, everybody in their right mind would say no, with probably an explicitive before that. Scripture says that sin leads to death. You've been set free from that. Why would you go back to it? Solomon writes in Proverbs, he describes it as a a dog returning to its vomit. No, you've been set free. Why? So you can live a new life. Don't submit back to that sin. Don't go back to that sin just because it's forgiven. You've been set free. Why? So you can live a life set apart. You can live a life to the full. You can live life in peace with God, with joy in your heart. Don't go back to those things. And Paul's not talking about sin here. He's talking about all of the legal demands of the law. You've been set free from those. So why in the world would you set yourselves back under them? Why would you submit yourselves back under those things? And he says this, according to human precepts and teachings, these teachings, all these extra customs and all those things, they weren't even from God. They were from men. Why would you submit yourself to the laws of men when you have the very word of God saying that your debt is paid? It's finished. Christ's work is complete. He was fully man. He was fully God and his Finished work on the cross is finished. We need not add anything to it. And then here's the incredible thing. And this is where there's so much wisdom in verse 23. Paul says this, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These things, these mystical experiences that people will come to you and say they had, that are full of hot air, This asceticism, this person that's beating himself into submission, that's intense, unnecessary discipline, like over the top discipline. This philosophy, all these things, they look like wisdom. They look like they're wise. The Greek word actually means that they have the reputation of wisdom. They look wise. But Paul says this they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What he's saying here is that all these other behaviors, all this legalism, all this list of rules has no value in changing your heart. Only the gospel, only the finished work of Jesus Christ can change your heart. Only the gospel works in you and then works out of you. All these other behaviors that are outside of you according to human precepts and teaching and all this list of things you gotta do to seem wise. They have a reputation of wisdom, but they will never help you overcome your sin. They will never help you live a life that's pleasing to God. Your willpower can't do it. Only the gospel, when it pierces your heart, when it cuts you to the heart, can change you in a way that you can live a life obedient to God. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And it is only when the gospel transforms our lives that we can live a life that's pleasing to God. All these other things, Paul says, these folks look wise, but their hearts are far from Him. Their hearts are evil. Their hearts are wicked. Because all of these behaviors, Paul knows it, it's certain. All of these behaviors, they seem wise, but they can't change your heart. They can't help you in your struggle against the flesh. Only the gospel will give you the power on a daily basis to live a life that's holy and pleasing and obedient to God. And it's not to earn his love, it's because we already have it. We have the gospel, it works in us and then it works out of us, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter two. And then... As we wrap up this morning, because that's the end of our text, Paul's gonna move into some more application next week as we move into chapter three. Um, But I wanna show you one thing real fast um, as we wrap up. And Paul says this, if you'll flip back over to verse 11 for me for just a second. Paul uses this word in verse 11. Um, He says this, he says, in him, in Christ, in our union with Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. And that word putting off, I mentioned this earlier, but that word putting off is the Greek word apecdusis. And what that word means is it means completely stripping off. That when you're in Christ, he has stripped off your sin and he has stripped off your shame, taking it away completely put it off. He stripped it off. And then if you'll look at verse 15, Paul uses the exact same word in verse 15. He says, he disarmed, what did he do? He stripped the enemies and the rulers and the authorities of their power. And what Paul is saying here, I don't want you to miss this, is at the cross, Jesus Christ stripped us of our sin, he stripped us of our shame, and at the very same time, he stripped the enemy of his power and he put him to open shame. Don't miss that. Our sin, our shame stripped down, the enemy's weapons stripped down and put him to open shame. That's what's happening at the cross. And how did they do it? They made a public spectacle of him. And what's so beautiful about that, is Jesus made a public spectacle of the rulers and the authorities, how? By letting them make a public spectacle of him. That's how he did it. He triumphed over the enemy, how? By letting, him, letting them think they triumphed over him. As they were making a public spectacle of him, he was making a public spectacle of them. As they were stripping him, he was stripping them of their power. As they were beating him, he was actually beating them. As they were humiliating him, God was exalting him to a name above every name. As they were triumphing over him, he was triumphing over them. As they thought they were experiencing victory, they were actually experiencing their defeat. At the cross, Jesus took our sin and our shame and gave us his righteousness. At the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. Why? So that you and I would never have to be. That's what was happening at the cross. At the cross, God was declaring his hatred for sin and his mercy for all who would receive him at the very same time. He was showing his justice and his wrath towards sin and every wrong that's ever been committed in our lives and his mercy to anyone who would receive him. At the cross, and this is what blows my mind. Um, We wear crosses today uh, because they're awesome and they're great, but you would not see anyone wearing a cross around their neck in the first century. It would be like you wearing a necklace that has an electric chair on it. Like it was the greatest instrument of murder, the greatest instrument of death in the first century. And at the cross, Jesus turned the greatest instrument of death into the greatest invitation of life. And the question is this morning, have you received him? You need not look any further, church. We don't turn to philosophy. We don't turn to asceticism. We don't turn to legalism to try to earn God's love for us. He has proven it to us at the cross. So the question this morning is, have you received it? Have you put your faith and your hope and your trust in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ on on your behalf at the cross. And if you haven't done that, our team would want nothing more than to come alongside you and disciple you through that decision and talk with you through that decision. And if you wanna respond this morning to that gospel, you can text High Point to 97000 and someone would follow up with you. Um, You can call our church. You can email our staff. Whatever you need to do to get a hold of us, we would um, be honored and privileged to help walk with you through that decision. But the invitation is there this morning. Have you received him? He's the image of the invisible God and his work is finished. Paul in Colossians, whatever our view of Jesus Christ is, it needs to be higher. He is God in human flesh and he's finished the work on the cross. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the cross. Father, we're grateful that it is finished, that Paul went through so much effort to tell us, God, that there's nothing we can add, that your grace is free. God, we praise you for that. Everything we do in this life, everything we're doing in this service is not to try to get anything from you. It's in response to what you've already given us at the cross. So God, we pray for those that haven't received this gospel, this good news, this announcement of what you've done on their behalf. God, I pray for those that are currently right now turning to other philosophies and other behaviors and other things to try to find their fulfillment. God, it is in you alone. So God, we respond now in worship to what you've done at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.